Hey folks, back here with uh, Becky Holtberg. Hello, Becky. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. The uh, the CEO, and I'm going to pull this up because I want to get it right. CEO of the Alaska State Hospital and Nursing Home Association. That's a long one. Ashna. Long acronym. You, you just before we started, you said you were at some point going to maybe try to consolidate that. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the initiatives I didn't get to before I moved on was uh, trying to rebrand so I could shorten that acronym. It's yeah. a long one. I mean, Ashna sounds. Pretty good. Uh, people know it by Ashna, and maybe it's good that it stays that way. So uh, it's funny. I tried to do a. Po- I ran into you in Juno last uh-huh. session. And I, I said we're gonna do a podcast. And yeah. you, were, you were like yes, and and then I just never was able to get a hold. You probably of you. had some more interesting people during that time of the, the year to interview. There was some very interesting. There's yeah. no shortage of interesting individuals. In That's Juneau, right. But it didn't happen in Juno. But I'm glad it, we're here because now I have the studio. All right. So it's a little little nicer than before in Juno. I was doing it kind of remote. Mm-hmm. I had a little mobile setup, and I would do it in people's offices and. Sometimes it got weird. Yeah. So trying to find a spot. Well, this is very professional, I have this to is, say. This is, uh, this is K1R, you know? Yeah, so yeah. That's how we do it here. So you um, kind of made, made the news recently. You're, you're leaving, right? You're going away. I am going away after a lifetime, literally, in Alaska. Um, I am headed south to Portland at the end of the year. I'm going to run the Oregon Association of Hospitals and Health Systems. So same type of job, just a bigger sandbox, and a very different market for healthcare. So essentially the same... Kind of th- th- that group there does what the Ashna does here. Is that that's correct? They represent the state's hospitals. Uh, we're a little bit um, different in that we represent the state's hospitals, uh, nursing homes, and hospice and home health providers. Um, but that's partly because we're small. I mean, we're a small market, so it makes sense to to consolidate them. So I want to talk a little bit about that later. Uh, a lot about that later, but sure. but I want to go back a little bit. So you actually worked for Governor Frank Murkowski. I did. Uh, I worked in his office for almost four years, three and a half years. Um, did a couple different jobs. Started out doing boards and commissions, which I have to say is the worst combination of HR and politics ever. I, I, I have a boards and commissions story you may have heard. Speedogate? I have heard yeah. that story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you kind of made a name for yourself with that, that didn't that, you? That one kind of blew up there pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you can understand then why the job of the boards and commissions director is thankless. Well, th- thankless, I think, yes, but also... Um, and, and I've, you know, many, I've lived here since 04, so I've, I've always, after that happened to me, I always kind of say, say, who's the governor choosing for the boards and commissions person? And it has to be somebody who is very, very familiar with Alaskan political landscape. Yes. Because there's so many people and there's so many competing, some board, and, you know, in my case, I ran against Liesel and she was chair of the Judiciary Committee when that happened and I was on the Judicial Conduct Commission. So all these different things happen. And mm-hmm. under the current governor, we saw just a... Kind of, kind of wild, early on, a wild situation involving boards and commissions. Vetting is very important, and doing a thorough job of vetting is very important in that job. It wasn't for me, so I did that for about a year. Um, moved, then I, I handled some issues in the governor's office uh, for a while, but then um, I was kind of famous or infamous for finishing out the last two years as the governor's press secretary. Right, yeah, so I moved here in 04, mm-hmm. and I feel like I, I, I was 19, but I feel like I have this vague memory that was my of, heyday of of something yeah. you said or did yeah. i'm trying to think what it was but I, like i it's like coming back to me a little bit yeah well um you, you were like the uh the, the original was it what's it sarah huckabee sandry <laughs> oh gosh please not that comparison um i give myself a little more credit um no it was a it was a tough it was a it was a tough time it was a pretty contentious time in politics um 
I mean, times are, are difficult now, but back then it, it was um, the, the, at a almost, I'd say, a different level. The jet. It was the jet. It was oil taxes. That's what really, I think, kind of blew up was conversations around oil taxes. And, um, you know, he was, an, you know, I have the, I, I think, so much respect for Governor Murkowski. I've done, I've done two. Just my favorite, one of my favorite people. But he was a little hard to manage. I've done two podcasts with him. Mm-hmm. And he's got so many stories. But I, yeah, all I, true. I, I know yeah. a lot of people, you know, Chris Noss, for example. He oh, used to I work. worked with Chris yeah, in the so, governor's office. So, yeah. I mean, I've heard a million stories. Yeah. And uh, I, I was, what did someone tell me when, when Frank made up his mind, you know, yeah. get out of the way? I'm the governor, you're not. <laughs> it was pretty much like that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so I, you, mean, you were hope- I think he directly said that a few times, but it was just kind of like when it got to that point, you're like, okay. Yeah. So, did you do press before that? No, I was like, just I was too articulate during staff meetings, I guess. So, so they, they're like, how that "Hey," happened? they said, "Do you want to be press?" Secretary? They did, and then they gave me like a two week crash course on how to talk to the media. Oh my god! Sent me out there, and I I survived. Had a few rough moments. Well, you're but pretty smart, so it yeah. helps, helps if you're smart. It, it, yeah, it helps. I, I understood issues, and I could string a sentence together or two, so it worked. Frank, I just told you before the podcast started that I did. I had this. Somebody told me the story. Ask about the Cherokee cows, mm-hmm. and I asked him about these cows in some island and near Kodiak, and I brought it up to you, and like right away, your eyes like. Lit oh, up. I'm like, yeah, I remember the Cherokee cows. My good friend Joe Brinkle was the staff person in charge of rescuing the Cherokee cows. It's what he did. In the governor's office. It was like, Frank told me, he's like, I don't, we're not going to kill those cows. Like, somebody said something about they eat, eat seagulls' eggs or something, or some, something with seagulls, and he was like, well, they, the seagulls can go somewhere else. We're not going to kill those cows. Well, you just think of all the resources that Fish and, uh, I don't remember who it was, U.S. Fish and Wildlife was going to spend on killing these cows for no other reason than to save a few seagull eggs, if I recall. That's what Frank said, yeah. And he was yeah. like, the seagulls can go somewhere else. The cows can't go anywhere else. That's right. <laughs> who knows? Maybe they were a distinct species by that point in time. They've been there so long. They were Aberdeen cows, he told me, so yeah. they were very, very strong. Yeah. So were you, were you dealing with the jet stuff? Oh my gosh, yes. That's what I remember. When I moved to 04, yes. and at some point, I think kind of Palin-type era, she, she was the jet was the, you know, she's going to sell the jet on eBay. That was and, me. I got to go out and talk about why it was important for the governor to have jet. I mean, I actually think, and and maybe now it's more understandable, but it makes sense to have a jet. I mean, of course it does. We're, we're bigger than, te- th- three times bigger than Texas almost. Right. And, you know, they fly commercial and there's delays. Yeah, and drive and, and fly from Anchorage to Barrow with no bathroom. I you, mean, seriously. You, you have to, yeah. They, so they have the King Air, I think, right? But yeah. that's not, so you have to go places. Uh, I think it makes total sense. But I guess at the time it was maybe just. It made sense. But it was at a point where the relationship was pretty contentious between the governor and the legislature already. And the governor had requested funding for the jet in his budget and been denied. Ooh. That's, that's the... what really, that was really the issue is the funding was, was not approved by the legislature and then he found a way to do it anyway. How do you, how do you do it? Uh, it was through the Department of Revenue. I don't remember the exact financing mechanism, but he was so happy when he found a way to buy the jet. Were you, were you ever on the jet? Oh, yeah. I flew oh, on the my jet. gosh. Really? Yes, how, was I it did. Not, was it nice? Well, it was like older. I mean, it was a private jet. Like, private jets are nice, but it wasn't like a brand new, it wasn't like a G5. fancy private jet. It was an older private jet. Yeah. How many people did it hold? Oh, I don't remember. Like six or eight or something. So at the time, you must have been what, in your 30s or? I was in my, yeah, late 20s, early 30s. So, so and what was it just, what was it like getting, you know, you have a job where you're like, oh, I'm getting on the jet. I'm going to. So it must have been kind of fun. It must have been fun. Well, it was better than getting on the King Air. Right. I mean, that plane kind of bounced you around from Anchorage to Juneau pretty good. So I've seen the King Air. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a nice plane, but you, you, those long trips you want to have. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty, it was a great way to, it's a, it's, it was a great way to travel. It was, 
made a lot of sense. It was just um, you can make a lot of sense from a logic standpoint, and it did, but then you have to consider politics. Politics and logic don't often And they don't always, you know, they don't always mix, and sometimes timing's everything, and it was the timing more than anything that was that, that um, created such a controversy. So what happened after um, Governor Murkowski was no longer governor? What did you do then? Uh, I did a brief stint with the PR firm, like six months. It kind of wasn't my cup of tea, and then I was at Providence for running communications and marketing for... Oh, four and a half years, I think. So Frank kind of gave you the, the, the entry into the PR world. He did. I had no background in PR before that, and which was kind of like kind of funny that I, you know. What was your, what did you go to school for? I have a history degree. Oh, me too. Yeah, really? From UA, yeah. So, okay, so my kid's comment is like, whenever we talk about the uselessness of, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, well, you did okay. So clearly, like, it's not such a bad I, thing. I doubled down. I have history and economics, okay. minor in economics. I have so. a minor in economics too. Look at it. Oh, my God. That's we're, so weird. We're like a kindred spirit. I know. Here. So you, yeah. went, you went to school in Texas, you said? I did. Where'd yep. you go? Abilene Christian University. That's in... Uh, Abilene, Texas. Ab- so where's yeah. Abilene? That's my... F- it's... Because um, I grew up in New Mexico. A couple so. hours, like two hours west of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Okay. All yeah. my extended family was down in Texas. So, so. you went there just a four-year deal? And- I actually graduated in three. Oh. So yeah, I was on the seven-year plan. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that in common. <laughs> So you, and then you came back. I did, came back, um, worked for, you know, before my tenure in the governor's office, worked for a nonprofit economic development group, and then I worked for the congressional delegation doing um, kind of constituent relations, and that's where I got to know Governor Murkowski, who really kind of gave me my first opportunity. Because he was a senator. He was the senator at the time, running for governor. And you said you had some young kiddos then? I did. I had two kids um, at that point in time that were pretty little, and then I've since had a third who's 11. So. so you started kind of the younger. I did. I have like a 21-year-old now. Kind of scary. Wow, yeah, really? I do. See, I'm 34 and I'm no kids, single. Yeah. And all my friends now have kids that are ranging from like two or three to like seven or eight. So Yeah, see, at your like age, I would have had like a 10-year-old. See, I can't even, can't even imagine that. Yeah. But I kind of feel like almost bad now. If I ever do have kids, they're going to have like my friends, they aren't going to be friends with my friends' kids, probably. Because oh. well, they're, they're already old. Someone else will have kids late, too. I got to find yeah. some people that are going to. Yeah. Or you just be like old dad. So my dad had even was forty one, yeah. and he was old dad. So yeah. growing up, I had some friends that you know their grandparents were my parents' age. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of it's always fun. Yeah. So you um, then you got into the healthcare. That's what I, I did. Talk so about. my first um, real job in healthcare was working at Providence, um, and I, I can't remember. I think in terms of governor's years, I think that was two thousand six. Um, or governor's terms. And so I worked there for about four years, kind of got a, a good introduction to, you know, to the healthcare industry, um, but didn't do as much in the policy side. That was, I learned, a, I, I learned a lot about policy, but it wasn't really my primary responsibility. And then after um, four and a half years, it was a little restless, just kind of time to do something different. And Governor Parnell asked me if I'd serve as his commissioner of administration, which, as you know, is kind of like the catch-all department. Like you have yeah, IT, HR, HR, finance, the public defender, DMV, retirement and benefits, which is the health plans. So um, it was a really kind of fun opportunity. So I um, took that position and then spent a lot of time. How was your confirmation process? <sighs> it was it was pretty easy. I had one vote against me. I still S- remember it. Same with uh, my friend Leslie Rydell. She had yeah. one vote and it was her friend. Yeah. Sam Keto. Yeah. It's just kind of weird how sometimes people have to vote no just because for some reason, because of a loyalty to someone else or who knows. I I don't know. So 50, it was 50, 59 is pretty good. It was pretty good. I was pretty happy some with that. Some folks get like 31. 
Yeah. That's not, that's not, not good. Not a you, vote of confidence. No, no. So, um, anyway, so that, you know, I, so I, I spent a lot of time in that job focusing on management of the health plans. People still call you commissioner. Some people do, but I think it's a little bit weird. I mean, I'm sure some people who are former commissioners enjoy that, but I'm like, I haven't done that job in like, a long time. I don't know you that well, but you're kind of like a Becky. I am. Hey, Becky. I'm pretty much just like as down to earth as, you know. So you, you, were, you were there basically almost all of Parnell's term, right? Yeah, I, I left in January of the last year of his term, and then the election was in November. So I, I didn't serve the last year, but I've served the first three years of the term. That must have been a whole, I mean, like you said, I, the administration yeah. covers so many things that... Call it the land of misfit toys. Nice. Because nothing fits together, right? Well, so What was your... Uh, I'm guessing DMV was always a thing, right? People always have something to say um, about DMV. Actually, DMV ran pretty smoothly under the radar screen for the most part. Um, spent a lot of time on retirement and benefits, the pension plan, the health plan, um, the state employee health plan. Spent some time on, on public defender. And then we implemented a huge IT system while I was there that uh, really didn't even launch till I had left, but I was there through the whole implementation. Have you ever, I'm sure you've heard of this. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Have you ever heard of ePORS? ePORS. Oh, the, yes, the retirement system for legislators. Yeah, well, Are the, there the, any living legislators there, in it? Few, I think there's a few, two left, I think. Maybe, okay. Maybe Clem Tillian might be in it. Uh-huh. And so, so basically there's, there's a whole section. I heard about this one day uh-huh. in, in a conversation and I said, what the hell? And, I, and there's a whole section on the State of Alaska website. And it was basically developed in like 76, I think, or 74. And it was, legislators made their own very, very, very lucrative retirement system. That's why it didn't last. Well, it got, it got um, there was a ballot initiative. Uh-huh. To, the, there was some kind of initiative to, to get rid of it. But, but when, it was, when it was in place, the, the judge later ruled that the folks that were in there at the time got it. And, and it, was, it was indexed to the some kind of mechanism where you get like a where the state gives raises based based on the um the CPI or something so basically you just get unlimited like raises mm-hmm. and, no matter what you no matter what you do or what you're doing and it was like super fucking lucrative yes and there's i think there's like Clem Tilling in my there's two or three le- alive that were that were on it. I remember however long ago it was now, five or six years ago, there weren't that many people in it. E- even yeah, back employee then. public, what is it, ePORS, but uh-huh. there's, there's still like a section on the State of Alaska website about it. It was yeah. back in the good old, that was back when the money... That was when the, the money was flowing. We were trying to figure out how we could spend all that money. Yeah, so, so. so you did the commissioner job for three and a half years. Yep. And then did you get into the health care? I ash- did. Then... Um, then I I got a call that this job was open and someone asked if I'd be interested in applying. And from working on the health plans, I'd gotten from doing the job at Providence, which was the provider side, and then managing the health plan. So really sitting on the insurance side, I'd gotten really interested in healthcare policy. And I'm kind of a policy wonk at heart. And and I so the opportunity to to run Ashna was just right up my alley. I mean, it was just a great fit. Um, and and so that's what I've gotten to do for the last five five years is is healthcare policy. So who's in Ashton? So it's Providence Regional. It's all, all of these. the state's hospitals except the military hospitals. So tribal, non-tribal hospitals. Uh, we also represent the nursing homes, and then um, just last year brought in the hospice and home health providers. So we're pretty di- we're we're more than just hospitals, but they're definitely our biggest members. And you were doing, I mean, I'd see you on TV a lot, testifying, you're mm-hmm. kind of the go-to for a lot of these health care. I mean, there's a lot of legislation all, all the time regarding health care. 
There is always something. And, you know, some sessions, obviously, just like anything else, are busier than others. But it's such a fascinating field because, you know, we we all need health care and none of us can afford to pay for it. I mean, right. We right. all need it. Like we may not need it today, but sometime in your life you will need it. And at that point in time, it may be the most important thing in the world to you. Yet none of us really are are paying for it. And I say that because, and let me explain why. Um, if you're on Medicare, it's subsidized. You didn't put enough in to pay for it. Well, so it's taxpayer end, subsidized. Especially the end of life. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know the numbers, but I think... So like a third of our of our total spend is on the end of life care, and people will you know be kept alive for six months and maybe a miserable state, and it's a million it's a million dollars. Right, and and pe- we contribute into Medicare when we work, but we don't contribute in enough to cover the benefits that we're going to take out. Medicaid subsidized, um, employer health insurance is subsidized because it's it's tax it, it it's not taxed. So. The only people, we've got VA, we've got IHS. You can just name all these different ways that we pay with public dollars. IHS, Indian Health Service. Indian Health Service. And then the only group that doesn't get a subsidy is the people who are over the 400% of federal poverty level paying their own way on the individual market. So so what I've said for a long time, and and I grew up, uh, I moved to New York, I was 19, and I got a job eventually in IT, and it was a small company, so we paid, paid a little bit of money, employer did pretty good there but the spouses didn't get covered because it wasn't big enough to cover that and then the deductible was like it was after obamacare so it was right during that so the deductible went to like it was like five thousand dollars and you know i always tell people if you're rich in america you're fine if you're poor you're covered under something medicaid or you know and but if you're in the middle and 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 not even i'm talking about you have to be very rich because even folks who make decent money you know, you get into a situation where you have a healthcare issue, and whether it's the cost of drugs or some procedure, it's just so it's just so fucking expensive. And I was in Australia, and I always tell the story. I was in Australia for a year, and and I think people can talk about single payer or about you know universal healthcare, but in Australia, literally no one worries about getting sick because they mm-hmm. all have some level of coverage, right? For 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 insurance, and there's private markets that you know compete, not compete. I guess they complement the the universal or the single payer model from the government. But but people, when I tell them about our system and I explain about losing your job and keeping a job because of health for your kid or the deduct- deductible or the copay, all these, they don't like, it's like hard for them to fathom it. It's so, mm-hmm. it's so, it's so messed up. Mm-hmm. Well, and we, you know, if you look at other countries' health systems, they've generally kind of picked a system and those systems, we kind of assume they're all socialized medicine and they're, they're not really. They're like one, you can look. There, there are lots of different kinds of systems. Sometimes the, the, the provider market is private. Sometimes the insurance market mm-hmm. is private. So there's a private sector involvement in them. Um, but we've chosen this really fragmented approach where we've got all of these different systems that exist in silos, which is incredibly inefficient. And and you know you can we could spend like hours talking about why care costs so much, but some of it's the decisions that we've made and then kind of the politics of inertia where it's just become so hard because we are so wedded to the system we have. And so the challenge is how do you take what's really good about our system and maintain that, but what's, transform what's, what's, what's it? Good, I'd say what's good is the innovation and the fact that we have such good, we have such a good health care, you know, um, provide, you know, providers right. when it comes to no treatment for cancer or when it comes to like, you know, if you have a heart attack, you know, you can go 
We have the best in the world. And when it comes to that kind of of care, and so we want to maintain that and build on it. But at the same time, there aren't many people in healthcare who who um, will tell you that that the system can continue like it is indefinitely. They can't. Last Friday, Bill Maher, I watch Bill Maher every week, Mm -hmm. and he talked about, I was going to closing wrap up, he talked about you know, America, we have this thing where if, you know, something's 50 bucks at Best Buy and you can get it for 45 at Walmart, you know, they'll give you five bucks. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. hardcore competition in most, most things we purchase. But he said when it comes to the high price items, he goes, why can a knee surgery in one city be $16,000 here and down the street it's, you know, $30,000? Right. And there's a lot of inefficiency and, and crazy incentives built into the system. Some of that is, is done by government. You know, the cost shifting, one of the reasons it is so expensive when you are privately insured is that the public programs don't cover the cost of care. So most hospitals couldn't stay open on what Medicare pays them. They just couldn't. Yeah. The reimbursement rates are very, yeah, they very... just couldn't make it work. So you have, so you have, so you have this um, phenomenon in, in healthcare, especially with hospitals where you have to charge some patients more because you can't, control what other what other provide you know what other payers are paying you how, how is it that we spend in america and, and for, for example compared to australia mm-hmm. we spend uh, all in per capita about twenty thousand dollars per person but australia spends half that per person so think about and canada as well spends sure. less, way less per person there's lots of reasons i think one of them is just the administrative inefficiency that we've built in i mean they're operating one system um you go look at a hospital and you see the numbers of number of billers and coders that have to work to submit claims to 15 different insurance companies, all of which have different standards, all of which are going to um, you know, pay for something differently or deny different kinds of services or approve different kinds of services. And then that's just in the commercial insurance market. And then you throw in Medicare, Medicaid. Um, we have an incredible amount of inefficiency built into our system. We also have higher prices. And I think that's something that we have to, um, you know, we have to acknowledge. I think there's a balance there, though, because in some countries, like, well, like you said, we have higher prices, but we also have great providers who do really innovative well, work. You know, some, some folks talk about like wait, waiting, wait, like wait lists mm-hmm. or lines. And in Australia, there, there, there is, there is. People admit there's. I mean, there's weight. Right. If you hurt your shoulder or your knee, and you're not going to die, and it's not a big deal, but it's you know it's painful, but it's something that needs you know requires surgery. You may have to wait three or four months to to get to get seen. If you have a heart attack, it's 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 rationed. If you have a heart right. attack, if right. you have cancer, if if you get in an accident and your bones you know snapped, they're going to take care of you right away. Right. Um. But but I, what I always tell folks is there may be weights in certain places that are that I would say are reasonable weights. But a lot of people in this country wait there forever because they can't afford the access to the care. I mean, the care exists, but they don't have the money to be able to go pay for the doctor and, you know, the deductible. I had a sinus surgery in 2014 and I paid, you know, my out-of-pocket deductible is like Mm $6,000 plus my premiums, I guess, were probably another, you know, 4000 a year. And then after, and I'm, I'm a smart person, I tried to navigate it. And I had to get an MRI, which was 1500 but they wouldn't tell me how much it cost because no one knows what anything costs. They had this book you're talking about the codes. Mm-hmm. And then and then I, I get the bill. Do- doctor's fee was 21000 But then I get a bill for 25000 But I had my deductible. I knew I was going to pay that out of pocket. But the 25000 I was like, because he, he was at Providence. It was from Providence. And I go, maybe it was more than I thought. That was the hospital bill. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even the doctor's bill. That was 25000 They They billed first. And then he he was twenty one thousand, but the insurance 
prorated some of the procedures. So he tried to he tried to tell me I owed him six thousand more dollars. I mean, how, how does it a four hour procedure and the anesthesiologist was two thousand cost fifty thousand mm-hmm. I dollars? Mean, isn't that insane? I think I mean, I mean when you phrase it that way. Um, again, I think you have to look at the overall economic picture for a hospital. I'm not going to sit here and I don't I don't have your bills in front of you and say, you know, what kind of insurance did you have? What was the what was the, the Primera? You know, what was the, you know, was the 25,000 the bill charge or was it what Primera actually paid? Cuz if it was the bill charge I don't think it's what they paid, I'm sure. They, that was what I got. If it was, was the bill charge, what Primera actually paid was a very small fraction of that charge because of the discount they so, negotiated. So do they have to I mean do they inflate constantly are they inflating to So to, to negotiate a, lower rate so they say okay we'll start here we'll start from here well and that's part of of the challenge of the system that we have now is yes that very often in at least in this market commercial rates are are discount off bill charges so you've got the hospital if it raises its charges then the insurance company wants a bigger discount and so pretty soon you get these big charges and very big discounts and so that's where um, it's very confusing for patients because they don't know the difference between the bill charge and what's actually paid. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, it's it's a system that exists because of a, a lot of history and a lot of different interests at the table. And it's going to take that collaborative effort if we decide to change that system. Why, why, why does Alaska have uniquely high costs to the point now where for years, you know, I know certain companies have been sending folks to like Seattle or Salt Lake or something for for medical procedures, which which I understand causes another set of problems. Where if, if I get if I have a surgery and I go to Seattle mm-hmm. or Salt Lake, my my employer sends me there, and you know it's cheaper with all the airfare and so, all that. Yeah, and so I think we make this generalization that Alaska's costs are you know I've heard this from someone who you know the other a couple of weeks ago a state official. Alaska's costs are the highest in the country, and our countries are the highest. So therefore, Alaska's are the highest. You know, basically the highest chart. You know, costs in the world. That is such an overly simplistic statement. We just really, I think it's it, we shouldn't be making it mm-hmm. because when you look at hospital charges, we are not the highest. In you can find different studies saying different things, but. Uh, we are not always the highest cost providers when you compare us to other states. As a matter of fact, I just saw some data that our actual costs have gone have have gone down in the last couple of years. So obviously, it depends on what data source you're using, what data you're looking at. It's really easy to cherry pick data and make assumptions that aren't necessarily true. But on a on a hospital basis, we're very efficient providers. Our utilization is low, and we are you cannot make the generalization that we're the highest cost. But but some companies have. Started sending folks. Sure. Artists. But then what I was going to say is the problem that creates is I was talking to a doctor friend of mine and someone came to him and there was something, they had a procedure, a surgery, and there was a kind of a complication. And he didn't tell the patient this, but he, he said, I wanted to say, why don't you go back to your doctor in Seattle? Right. So that creates another problem where if you're going out of state and I guess depending on the surgery, maybe something's minor, but something, any surgery can have some complication. Now you're having doctors here correct or resolve issues from surgeries that happened thousands of miles away. And that seems, I when I heard that, I said, man, that's kind of a good point. You know, It is. It's And it's not optimal for people to go out of state. I mean, we know that they choose to do that, but it's, you know, it, it's hard physically on on people to travel, uh, you know, to have surgery and then, tra- or, and then travel. Um, the follow-up care is, of course, an issue. Um, 
ideally, we'd like to treat everybody here in the state, recognizing that there are some things we're probably never going to do here. You know, we're not going to do heart transplants here. Um, but when costs did rise, and I think you have to look at it um, also in terms of, of the overall economy, when the state's economy was booming because oil was through the roof, um, healthcare grew just like everything else. Then everything else shrunk really quickly, and healthcare didn't shrink as quickly. Mm-hmm. And so there was kind of a delayed reaction, I think, on the healthcare sector to uh, to the recession. What, what about? And this is you know Alaska. This happens in Alaska. It happens all over the country. This kind of growing medical tourism. You know, folks. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who sort of hurt a shoulder recently. Went to Mexico, but I saw. I saw your your. Uh, you probably saw the yeah. video. Or huh? I watched it. My friend Kale. Yeah. So, but the, I know people who go to Thailand sure. for things. Or- and, and there's always going to be a market for that. And for the people that make that choice, uh, maybe it. You know, I, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. But I'm not going to say that for everyone that's a bad option. Um, but the challenge is the number of procedures that you can do that with is really limited. You've got to be able to travel long distance, and you mm-hmm. can't do that for for very many things. Um, like, I know when I got my sinus surgery, I was you know under anesthesia, and then I got I woke up, and all I wanted to do was go home right away, get a ride. I wanted to just right. lay down. And I wanted to rec- spend a few days kind of just recovering because I felt so, I just wanted to be, I wanted to be in my house. You know? right. I wanted to be home. Right, that's where you're going to recover the best. And so I think you know people need to consider you know consider that, um, and also you know the more capacity we lose here, the more people leave here, um, the more expensive it's going to be to provide care for who's left because we are running 24-hour facilities seven days a week. I mean, there are fixed costs, And those fixed costs don't go away. So from an economic perspective, you know, that's not real. That's not really ideal either. If if Becky Holberg was in charge of healthcare in America, Mm -hmm. you could could say... I'm gonna. You can do whatever you want. What would you? What, what's your opt, optimal system? So I do system? a couple things. I'd I'd have somehow I'd I'd do some consolidation so that we didn't have as many payers as we do now. Um, so we have some more economy of scale. And then I would change what we pay for. And I think that's the really critical thing that could help our system change, and while retaining the the good things that that we love about our system, the innovation, the high quality providers. So instead of paying for episodic care when people get sick. We need to flip the economic model so that providers are paid to keep a population healthy. It's it's called global budgets. There there are experiments on this um, all over the country. Oregon's doing one. And some employers, I mean, some employers do that, right? Where they they want you to get your uh, you know blood pressure checked and your uh, blood you know your triglyceride cholesterol. They want you to do all those things, right. and then if you right. do that, you get a little bit of X. They pay a yeah, little more and, for your health care. But what what needs to happen is the provider is part of that financial incentive. So the health system, say it's a, a hospital that, and they have affiliated or employed physicians, so they, they kind of do everything in a community. You know, are they going to get revenue the, based on the number of people that walk through their doors who are really, really sick? Or are they going to get a set amount of money and within that um, have the responsibility to keep people healthy? If they do that, then they start investing in things that are smart. They start investing in prevention. They start sending people out to, you know, sending providers out to people's homes to check their blood pressure, to help, you know, keep them out of the emergency room. So you flip that model and suddenly we pay for the things that are smart instead of just paying when people, when people get Cause, sick. Because when you, I mean, we all know that when you go to the ER for quote unquote healthcare, when something's wrong, the costs are astronomical. Right. So we have to start paying for value instead of paying for volume. The current sy- system, which is called fee for service, is basically the more you do, the more you get paid. 
And so guess what? We have a lot of sick people and we're doing a lot of things to a lot of sick people. That's not the outcome we want. It's like one of the only industries where we're not paying for what we want. What, what, what about when you go, you know, I, I've been at the ER for a while, but I know when you go to the ER, I had a friend, Russian friend one time years ago, he, he got hurt playing soccer, took him to the ER. And it was, his first, I think it's one of his first times maybe in the ER experience in, in America. And, and he, he was telling me, he was like, why are they, like, they're taking his blood, you know, they're doing all these things. And he's like, why are they doing all these things? He's like, I hurt my arm, you know, fix my arm. Well, there's... And those all cost money, I assume. Obligations uh, under... I mean, there's an obligation for that ER provider, a legal obligation to stabilize and treat that. I mean, federal law says you have to stabilize and treat this person. And so they're going to make sure that they've correctly identified what's wrong with that person. And if they missed, you know, if, if he had an underlying heart condition and they didn't didn't understand it, that's not only a potential bad outcome for the patient, but it's potential liability for the provider. So how much of the uh, costs are the, are the tort related? Um, I think there's a, that's a, definitely a factor. It's probably um, one at one factor among many different types of administrative costs that, that burden our system. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, I think sometimes it gets a little blown out of proportion that if we just, you know, that's the problem with healthcare, right? If we just fix this one thing, we'll fix the system. Yeah. So it's many things. It's right? many things. And that's why we have to take a holistic look at the system. And it's really going to require some reengineering of the entire, of, of the whole system from that perspective, not just like if we fix this one thing, we're going to fix healthcare. Yeah. I mean, I think, I forget who said that, but they said we don't have a healthcare system. We have a, we have a sick care system. Exactly. And we've got to flip that paradigm. We've got to start incentivizing providers for what we want, which is a healthier population. So the other thing we were going to talk about was I spoke at that um, state of reform deal a few weeks ago. Yes, you had a strong opinion on certificate of need. That was my second time. So I spoke last year Uh and they just asked me, I didn't know what it was. And I said, sure, I'll speak anyway. I don't don't care. And um, so it was kind of the insider look or healthcare. And it was me and Jim Lotzfeld. But um, I brought up certificate of need because at the time when that those freestanding ER bit things were happening. I was involved with the community councils and I was the, the president of the Federation for community councils. Mm. And they came in pro- regional and to, to do this. And then I remember like a week later, there was this big backlash from, 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 I think it was Providence. Maybe it was other people as well, but let's talk a little bit about that. And in my mind, I, what I said at the reform state of reform was, I don't think the government should sanction people's ability to open a business. Right. But you, you, you're saying it's a little more complicated. Yeah. Than that. I mean, I understand that if you're looking at just at it from a purely market, you know, standpoint, like you're just looking at basic, you know, economics, microeconomics 101, right? Like what happens when you have competition? Generally, price goes down and quantity goes up. And that's a good thing for consumers. That is standard economics. Healthcare doesn't follow that model. And it, it doesn't follow it for a variety of reasons. Part of it's the public payment that we have in healthcare, um, And part of it is that supply tends to create its own demand. And so if you build a bunch of new infrastructure in healthcare, you're going to pay for that infrastructure. And so just a quick, quick, just a quick reference. Uh, years ago, Alaska Regional wanted to build two freestanding ERs, which I understand can do basically everything unless somebody's having. Yeah, like I'm not going to. And I'll just in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not going to wade into the ER. E- the ER fight because that was two of my members that, that were on opposite sides. So okay. I'm not going to touch that one. Um, but we can talk about some other examples of certificate of need. And even though, you know, there were different opinions on that, both of those hospitals support maintaining the certificate of need program uh, because it's important uh, for for our healthcare infrastructure. So how does it work? So the legis- is it the legislature has to... Um, there's a statute in the... There's a statute that, that 
basically tells it outlines some parameters and the department has developed regulations. And if you want to build a certain type of facility, freestand, like a hospital, an ambulatory surgery center, freestanding imaging center or nursing home, it's fairly limited. You have to get go through a process of demonstrating that there is a need in the community that the facility will fill. Because otherwise, the theory is you're just building excess capacity that's not needed, and that capacity will get paid for. It'll get paid for by Medicaid. It'll get paid for through commercial insurance, and everybody's costs will go up. What about these, like, doc-in-the-box urgent care things? Are those um, Urgent care aren't covered by certificate of need, and there's a physician office exemption. So if you are a physician and you are in private, you know, own your own business, you can pretty much do whatever you want in your own office. Well, there's plenty of those. I mean, yeah, doctor's exactly. offices. If, you know, if certificate of need lowered prices, we'd have really cheap surgery prices in this town because we have lots of ambulatory surgery centers. But it didn't really. Opening all those up through loopholes in, in CON really did not lower the cost of surgery. So those are the, like, there's one on, like, I think Lake Otis has a surgery center. Yeah, right? there's so like, I don't know how many of them there are, but there are lots of them around town. So the, the doctors choose which one they're going to eat because they have to have a place where they can do the surgery. Sure, so. yeah. And, and you know, that generally um, makes logical sense that if you have a surgery center and you do the surgery center in your surgery center, you get the revenue from the center itself and your professional fee. So it's more lucrative to do the surgery in your surgery center. A little, uh, little double dip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it just, it, again, it's just, that's just makes economic sense if you're, if you're, you know, looking at it from that perspective. But the problem is, let's look, look at example, for an example, nursing homes. Nursing homes are in this state, 85 to 90% Medicaid. Oh, it's that high. It's that high. So if you build a new nursing home, and, and guess how, and, and reimbursement for nursing homes is based on cost. It's a daily rate based on cost. So without the certificate- Cost of, of providing? Cost of operating the facility. Okay. So if you build five new nursing homes, reimbursement's based on cost, 85 to 90% Medicaid, who's going to pay for it? It's going to be the state of Alaska. It's public dollars that are going to be paying- um, for those facilities. And we actually need new, we actually do, that is one area where we need more capacity. And we fully supported the CON application of the new uh, nursing home in the Matsu Valley. Is, are the Pioneer Homes part of your uh, Eshna? They are. Uh huh. So, I, I don't know if they are now with the state's budget problems, but they have in the past been historically. So, so that's something else I was going to ask you. Of all the you know nursing homes in the state, uh-huh. I mean, they're technically what, what not a nursing home. They're technically assisted living, but they kind of are pretty much provide nursing home level of care. Like what percentage of folks who are living in, in those kind of facilities uh-huh. are like, is, is are the Pioneer Homes doing half that, a third of that? Um, small- I don't know what their Medicaid percentage is, but it's going to be smaller. It's going to be lower than in a in a private facility because it's subsidized. So if you have assets, makes sense to get on the Pioneer Home waiting list because it's subsidized. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have a higher, a lo- probably a lower percentage of, of uh, Medicaid eligible individuals than um, some of our nursing homes. Um, that's, I don't have the data to support that. That's kind of speculation, but but from what what I've we've gathered. I mean, nursing nursing homes are that gets the cost and that the cost of those get very high. It right? gets so. very high because you have people who need twenty four hour mm-hmm. care, pretty intensive levels of care, and we think the Pioneer Home fills a really important niche in the, the current continuum of care in the state. One of the biggest problems we have right now from a hospital perspective is not having places to discharge patients. Like you can't discharge a patient who needs 24-hour care home. They have to go to a nursing home. And so, and hospitals can't discharge people if they can't find a safe place to do it. So we've had hospitals with patients in their inpatient unit for more than a year because we couldn't find a place to dis- discharge wow, them. Wow, really? Jeez. So talk about inefficiency in your system 
that's like the highest cost environment possible. But if you don't have a place to discharge someone, that's where they. I've kind of always thought, you know, I've always thought that I think you can tell a lot about a society by the way they treat the the people kind of worst off members. Right. You know, whether it's prisoners or whether it's you know the elderly, and you know, there's been a lot of documentaries on this thing, and, and it's been covered widely. But it just seems like if you're old in this country and you don't have a lot of money, I mean, it's really really. I think we need to. Do, I don't think we do a, a great job. I don't think so either, and we don't do a good job taking care of people. You know, maybe you're old and have dementia, and so you have some behavior issues resulting from that. Those are really. It's really hard to find places to take care of of people, and with in in those situations, um, the developmentally disabled. So a lot of times, the people that were that are, that hospitals have a hard time finding placement for are people with some kind of a behavioral health component. Um, to their condition, which makes maybe their behavior challenging, but it gives us, but we have no less of an obligation to take care of them in the right care setting and in a humane way because of that. So I guess moving moving forward here, you're, mm-hmm. you're, when do you when do you go to or- or- um, Oregon? I'm headed down in December. Oh, my birthday is December 21st. Yeah. Okay, well, before your birthday, how's that? You're going to miss the roast of Jeff Lanfield. I will miss the roast of Jeff Lanfield. It's going to be good. <laughs> Epic, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so your, your whole family, the whole family. So going? I'm headed down in December. We're actually not gonna. Um, the family's not headed down till after the school year. My middle child's a senior in high school. So oh, yeah, you don't yeah. want to. No, wanna he's dis- gonna finish disrupt, out of high school. Disrupt that. Yep. So we'll, the goal is really for us to be moved, moved by the start of the school year next year. So uh, if you don't want to answer this, it's, uh-huh. it's no big deal. But are you? Le- is, is it a better opportunity, or is it? Things in Alaska. I mean, is it? I guess. Why are you yeah, going? Yeah. So, going? like, are you leaving because the governor's budget? And yeah, the yeah, answer is, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just say it, Jeff. <laughs> uh, um, no, I I knew about the opportunity before. Kind of, we had some of the budget drama of this year, and it's an you know my. I think this is a little bit of a digression here, but we have like two moral imperatives in this country right now that I think are are really important. One is to take care of people today. And we have mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't believe that we need to do that, but I believe that's a moral imperative to provide health care for people when they need it. And number two is to do it in a way that doesn't bankrupt us in the future, that is sustainable, so that we have, that we're passing on a legacy to, to our children that is sustainable. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to work on. And um, so to work on that in a bigger sandbox will give me a different kind of platform. And, an, and, and it's a more mature healthcare environment. They're doing some of the things that we talked about. And so I want to work in that delivery system and in that environment. Um, so, so that was all kind of in the back of my mind before um, this budget cycle. Um, so we're not leaving. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of like a fighter. Like I don't like to – it makes it actually harder to leave in a way. Um, this is your I- ideal zone maybe. Yeah, like I don't like to – I mean – I my inclination when things are tough is not to bail it's to stay in and i mean ashton is involved in some some lawsuit legal stuff yeah now, we right? settled our lawsuit with the state about a week and a half ago oh, okay oh, I we did, did. I yeah that. it was just kind of like it was a sh- little short news article but we didn't really want to blow it out it just was the intent of that was over principle we felt like we accomplished our purpose uh and i'm happy we did it i think it was the right thing to do um so i as much as I am excited about the opportunity in Oregon, um, I I hope that I can leave my organization in a strong position to continue advocating for healthcare access. Um, how, many, and, how many people live in Oregon? I don't even know the population. I think it's like four million. So it's, it's not huge. Quite, quite, a, well, quite a bit bigger, bigger than, than here, Alaska. but it's not like a you know not like a huge state. So 
Yeah, so I, I, you know, I feel good about doing that. I feel like Ash has been, we've contributed to the public debate. And so walking out the door, um, they, I'll feel they, good about that. Are they sad you're leaving? Yeah, they're really sad they're, I'm leaving. I, like I said, I, I didn't know really, I kind of knew who you were a little bit, yeah. but then I started paying a lot more attention, close attention to politics. And I, I'd see you testify um, either on gavel or in person quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, I've been at this at these table, you know, in this in this world for a long time now and I've got a lot of relationships and I'm really sad to leave, you know, those, you know, to not be working with all the people that I love to work with, not just in my industry but really just kind of in the political sphere in Alaska. Um, you don't really realize what you're leave, you know, that all these relationships you've built up till you think that you know till you think of starting over again and think, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, man. Well, when I wrote when I wrote in my column a few weeks back that you were leaving, maybe it was a month back, but uh, I wrote about the you know taking the job and I had um and I had some a lot of people didn't know, uh-huh. so I had a lot of legislators and a lot of staff like e- reach out to me and, and they said like shit you know because they they think you're really kind of an asset. They very sad to see you go. A lot of yeah. folks told me, told me that. I'm I, sure you've heard a lot I, more than me. I really appreciate hearing that. I mean, I've always tried to speak, you know, to be to be kind. First of all, to be kind. It's really easy in this environment to not be kind. Yeah, that's and, true. And I think it's, I, I've tried to be kind. I've tried to um, look at issues from a policy standpoint and then be honest about what I've found. Like, we can disagree on policy, but I'm going to call it out. Like, I'm not going to call it out, like, some of the things the governor, you know, the governor's Medicaid cuts, you know, it was important just to set, you know, to talk about what they, to talk about reality, to honestly identify actions and consequences and have a real conversation about it. And it doesn't have to be an emotional, always, it doesn't always have to be an emotional conversation or a political one. We need to have real, honest conversations about policy. And I feel like I've been able to do that on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I hope that I can continue um, to do that in my next role because, um, you know, we are so politicized now, and especially with healthcare. I mean, healthcare is the one of the you know there's a lot of things happening, but healthcare is always kind of in the forefront. And it is an emotional issue because people's life. I mean, people's people feel like their lives are literally on the line when you talk about cutting out people's access to healthcare. So it is an emotional issue, and it's not that we shouldn't you know, talk about it in that way. But we also just have to be sure that we're having really honest conversations about Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to make decisions based on information and, and facts and not, not emotions. Because if you make informa- decisions based on emotions all the time, you're going to have... That's it could, could true. Be, it could be worse. But you can't forget the human element and that the decisions that are made in government, which is what's always attracted me to the world of public policy, have real consequences on people's lives. And so... Yeah, you have to look objectively at the facts, but always then remember that there's well, a human element there. I think the one story that got a lot of traction after those cuts got um, put in place was was the guy the guy getting his teeth replaced. Right. And, it it and put a human face that, on that the consequences a real, of a choice. Right. That was a real thing. Yeah. I mean, we could guy. talk about people who would lose access to dental benefits, but when you saw the guy and the impact in his life, it really framed the choices that we had in front of us. And I think that's kind of the job of people in my role is to really help frame the choices that we have. And then then lawmakers and the governor can make those choices. But we have to be able to have an honest conversation about what they are. Well, Becky Holtberg, I really appreciate you doing this. This has 
been looking forward to doing this with you for a while. So well, thanks for having me on. It was I, a lot of fun. I ran into you at the coffee shop there a few weeks. Yeah, back, so. well, uh, I'll be uh, back and forth. My extended family's still up here, and I you promise look- I won't be one of those annoying people that comments on Alaska politics from afar. <laughs> well, you, you live in Anchorage or Juneau? I live in Anchorage, but my family's—I have um, a brother and sister here in Girdwood in Anchorage, and. My parents are in Kenai, so. It's funny, the uh, last week, you know, Rachel Petro? Uh-huh. So she, she moved yeah, for a job, yeah. and, and I saw her the um, steamed out last week, and I was like, oh my God, it's Rachel Petro. So yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She there may be, uh, maybe, I know where you hang out. You hang out at that steam dot, so. I do hang out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah you'll, you'll find me there. Yeah. Kate Blair, I see Kate Blair sometimes, yeah, too, come back, yeah. so. Well, there's a part of the state that you never, even if you leave it, you always, you know, is always with you. I mean, it's kind of a cheesy thing to say, but once you've lived here, and especially when you've lived here as long as I have. Well, I went to Australia for a year, and I, you know, I obviously I came back. I thought about trying to immigrate there, but every every day, even you could be having the best yeah. time. But you always kind it's of, a special place. It is. Do you, do you last thing? Do you have any? Uh, have you decided? Do you have any intent to like come back, or you don't know? Or you know, I'm just looking at this as a season in life, and I don't have plans beyond this season in life. I wouldn't rule it out. But I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, my, I'm going to have two kids in college and they're going to be, one's in college in Oregon, one's going to be probably in the Pacific Northwest. And so for this season in life, I want to kind of stretch myself professionally. I want to help fix healthcare. That's what I want to do. And I think that, and I want to work in the Oregon delivery system. I've admired them from afar for a long time. How about, how about I'll make you a deal if I ever become governor? Um, I think I found my health and Social Services Commission. <laughs> All right, that's the deal. <laughs> okay, Becky, well, thanks again. Right. I wish you the best of luck, thanks. and thanks for coming on. All right, folks, uh, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, let me know, and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.